This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, and uh, I consider an expert on all things that relate to contemporary spirituality. <laughs> uh, and uh, our guest today, Danny Goldberg. Danny is the author of several books. Uh, he is uh, currently president of Gold Village Entertainment, and his most recent book, uh, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the hippie idea. Uh, 1967, obviously being uh, 50 years ago, it's the year I graduated from high school, and I'm really looking forward to this interview because that's a, a subject area of great uh, interest to me. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, I'm so happy to talk to you guys. Uh, Danny, um, first uh, we should establish that uh, you and I are not related. Correct. A lot of Goldbergs, a lot of Goldbergs. Yes, I'm, I'm from Whoopi's side of the family, and so we, we are probably not related. Um, we wanted to have you on because 1967 was such a pivotal year in uh, the spiritual history of, of uh, the West and America in particular. And when I saw your book and heard you interviewed, I uh, was very pleased that you got that because one could write about 1967 and ignore that and they would not have captured the whole thing. Um, so tell us, uh, with all that was going on and with your background in the music industry and in politics, what was the impetus for writing this book? I just sort of it came to me uh, to do it. I um, uh, I, I had uh, a little more time available to me, uh, and um, uh, I was having dinner with a literary agent, and she said how um, she thought I could probably there, there would be books that one could sell about 1968 because of the 50th right. anniversary coming up next year, and this was uh, this ran the holiday period of uh, of. Uh, 2015, and I just had a visceral reaction that that was uh, not the thing that I wanted to focus on because I, I feel that the history has covered 68 quite a bit and, and should in the future, and that, that that history usually focuses so much on the assassinations of Dr. King and of Robert Kennedy and of the uh, disturbances outside the Democratic Convention and. Uh, a, a lot of dark things that were part of the 60s, but but to me, um, 67 had a particular combination of things. As you say, it had a spiritual component component that, that deeply affected me. It had uh, more of the optimism side of the 60s. And uh, I just realized if I was going to do it, I'd better hurry up because deadlines being lead time being what they, what they are. And... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, it, I also graduated from high school in 67, and it had a certain meaning to me, and I just sort of uh, went into a trance reliving uh, that history for about <laughs> eight months while I rushed to meet a deadline to, so it could come out uh, a few months ago in time for the 50th anniversary of the so-called Summer of Love. It was just one of those things I, I wanted to do. The 60s affected me a lot, and this was a chance to give my take on them. Danny, I'm curious. Uh, I also graduated from high school in 67, right across the river from you in New Jersey. And, and I, I'm going to guess you were a little ahead of the curve. I hadn't really become uh, a hippie yet or, or, or been categorized as that. And, and uh, 
Uh, we were just moving in that direction in the course of the next uh, one to two years. Where were you at uh, uh, in terms of uh, hippiedom? Uh, in, uh, well, in, well when, you, I when you graduated had, from high school. Yeah, yeah. I, I had already taken LSD then. I, okay. I In my junior year, um, in the summer between um, sophomore and junior year, um, it occurred to me that girls... Uh, I met a girl who liked this guy that I knew who was a dope smoker. And I had kind of looked down on smoking dope up until that point, thought it was kind of this criminal, degenerate behavior. And uh, But the idea that this was attractive to girls uh, was quite impressive to me. So when I got back for junior year, I tracked down my, my friend Joel Goodman, who I write about in the book. He's an interesting guy. His uncle was Paul Goodman, one of the great mm. uh, philosophers of the 60s, radical philosophers. Mm. Growing up absurd. Growing up absurd. And he was my best. Joel was my best friend. I'm still friends with him. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, within a within a month or two, uh, I had uh, penetrated the dope smoke, the, the stoner uh, clique in high school. So my, so, and it was a life changing experience for me. I really, uh, wouldn't, uh, you know, say it's good for everybody, but for me at the age of 15, um, it just turned black and white into color. It, it, uh, it made me, uh, uh, kind of instantly a part of this community. And I'd been kind of an outsider, what I guess today would be called a nerd. Uh, and um, I remember vividly the first music I listened to when I was stoned. So junior and senior years of high school were, and then, and then by the next year, I I had taken LSD through a friend of Joel's, had some Sandos. So those two last years of high school to me were certainly psychedelic. In terms of the other aspects of the '60s, I came from a pretty left wing family, and 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 uh, as soon as I kind of understood what was going on in Vietnam from reading the papers in '65, was against it. And a group of us uh, went to one of the marches and. November of 65. And I was in the New York area and there were some media there that really was plugged into this growing counterculture. WBAI had a right. uh, midnight show hosted by Bob Fass where Bob Dylan would come on and play a song and uh, Arlo Guthrie played Alice's Restaurant for the first time and Abby Hoffman and other anti-war people were on all the time as well as kind of cosmic dudes like Paul Krasner, who's one of the people I dedicated the book to, and Wavy Gravy, who was then called Hugh Romney. Uh, the Village Voice was chronicling it. Uh, so I was uh, an, an avid front row spectator of this so-called counterculture, yearning to be part of it, and disinterested in almost every other aspect of life. I was an indifferent student, not an athlete, uh, but I was really... Um, captivated by the idea that there was kind of a new way of defining oneself, a new way of uh, thinking about the purpose of life and 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 uh, this community that, that, that I could be part of. Right. Yeah, Phil, if I could just follow up. Yeah, go ahead. As you, as you were speaking, I, I actually remembered, uh, Danny, uh, in 1960, October 1967, right, so that was exactly 50 years ago, I remember going to Washington Square Park, I don't know if it was a weekend or a weekday, I think it was a weekend, like a Sunday afternoon, and there were people giving speeches and there was stuff going on, and that was a mind-altering experience for me, just hearing this stuff, and, and my, it just set me in the direction uh, uh, in terms of spirituality, in terms of uh, hippiedom or whatever, that I went into uh, shortly thereafter, but that was exactly then, and I'm going to guess you were familiar with the West Village in that area at that time having been uh, in school there. 
in high school? I, I, I was earlier, you know, by October, I, I got, you know, I get, we graduated in June. I got into University of California, Berkeley. And so I was in Northern California by the fall of 67. But, uh, you know, I, just to be clear, my book's not a memoir. It's sort of 5% about me and 95% just a history through my eyes to try to really uh, understand the things that I was in but wasn't quite old enough or cool enough to be part of. But but yeah, the West Village was the magnet. It's where I wanted to be. My parents lived in Westchester. I thought they were crazy. I didn't know why they lived in Manhattan. And <laughs> and to go down there, you know, was 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 like entering a, a different country. People had longer hair, and there were uh, there were you know uh, macrobiotic restaurants, you know, and there were uh, there were uh, you know uh, different. Uh, Guru, guru wannabes and students, you know, the Hare Krishna yeah. movement, at least in the lower you know, I'm sure Phil this, but you yes. just want me to that neighborhood and started chanting Hare and then Allen Ginsberg showed up and it became. I was living in the East Village in 1967 and um, we would go to Tompkins Square Park and chant with the Krishnas mm -hmm. there and um, partake of their Sunday free food, which was, it was very good. <laughs> Mind-blowing. It was one of the, definitely a good, a good advertisement for Krishna. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and it was, you know, in that summer of 67 is when the Beatles uh, started to meditate with Shemayash Yogi. So that was a pivotal time. Um, I want to ask you uh, what you've observed uh, or what you found in your research about one particular aspect of this that's always intrigued me because it mirrors my own life. I was a, a, a student radical and you know SDS guy, and then I had my own spiritual transformation first through drugs and then through meditation and exploration, and became a sort of spiritual activist. And I remember having that there were, at the time, uh, people, there were sort of the politicos and then the, the sort of hippie spiritual types, and there was often tension. There were people who didn't quite, who saw people who were doing the spiritual thing as sellouts or escapists. Did you uh, run into a lot of that in your research? Yes. Um it's one of the key characteristics of the period. Um, and, um, you know, at the, at the be-in, you know, uh, what, what kind of brought the hippie culture to mass awareness was a thing in January of 67, which All I was right. not at. I was too young. Uh, you know, I was in New York, but it was called the Human Be-in in San Francisco. And um, Alan Ginsberg was kind of the MCA of this program. And somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people showed up, which was like five or 10 times more than any previous hip gathering. And there had been negotiated, it was called the subtitle of the human being was a gathering of the tribes. And the idea uh, of, the, of the people who organized it was to try to create a common space for political radicals, um, uh, anarchists, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and um, psychedelic seekers, and uh, who, who, who normally didn't associate with each other. Uh, there, there was a meeting uh, at, um, uh, oh God, I'm having a block on the guy's name, one of the editors of the San Francisco Oracle's apartment mm. 
where members of the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane were there, as well as some radicals from Berkeley, because University of California, Berkeley, where I later went to college, was a hotbed of political radicalism. One of the first right. teach-ins against the Vietnam War was there. And in 64, they had these free speech demonstrations that really launched a lot of radical activity in America. And, um, and uh, a couple of the radicals, uh, Michael Lerner and Jerry Rubin, turned to the group and say, so all these people are going to come and these bands are going to play. What are going to be our demands? And mm. uh, the, uh, you know, one of the members of the airplane just laughed and said, man, there are no demands. It's a B-in. <laughs> and uh, but they, they agreed that Jerry Rubin could speak. Rubin uh, had been one of the uh, involved with the anti-war movement there and 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 uh, the civil rights movement and a fiery orator who later became relatively famous in the anti-war movement and um, and gave a speech that uh, he tried to aim at at the hippie culture. But Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead was there and he later said that he was so turned off by the anger in uh, in uh, Rubin's tone that it permanently turned him against political activity. Huh. And um, the the uh, so and Tim Leary, uh, who was one of the best known people sort of advocating the use of LSD, uh, was quite contemptuous publicly of the anti-war movement. And a lot of anti-war leaders like Tom Hayden, who was one of the first presidents of SDS and great thought leaders, uh, you know, had had great contempt, as you were suggesting, for people who took psychedelics. So there was that tension. And and at the same time, there were people who traveled among the different worlds uh, mm -hmm. comfortably. Allen Ginsberg was welcome everywhere, whether it was Black Panthers, uh, anti-war radicals. Uh, he took LSD, uh, you know, with Leary and Ken Kesey. He was friends with the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Uh, Paul Craster, who I mentioned earlier, the editor of The Realist, was, had kind of dual citizenship. And, and the whole point of the Yippies, uh, in some ways, that Abby Hoffman and Krasner and, and Jerry Rubin created was to create uh, some kind of a, a common ground between the so-called, uh, you know, uh, mystics and the and the so-called activists. Uh, but but in broad strokes, they were two very different energies and only occasionally cooperated with each other. Right. Yeah, uh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, Danny, uh, <clears throat> you New York and, uh, and Berkeley were, you know, two of the centers of the hippie movement uh, back in 67. Did you notice, was, was, I was familiar with New York, I wasn't familiar with uh, Berkeley or San Francisco at that time. Was there a big difference between those areas? Well, pot was cheaper in Berkeley. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> there you but, go. you know, I, um, there wasn't as much difference as you might think. You know, it was an international movement, really, and and people kind of who looked a certain way and spoke a certain way um, had more in common with each other than they did with people that happened to be in the same zip code. Um, you know, Kesey uh, had told Tom Wolfe, um, and he was quoted in the book, The, the Electric Kool-Aid Essay Test, that, you know, that California was three years ahead of New York. You know, he was very... But, but by 67, New York and London had caught up. I think what Kesey was referring to was just the availability of psychedelics. Mm. And um, I, I found them pretty similar in many respects and went back and forth without feeling any culture shock. Yeah. Um, Danny, uh, you mentioned a couple of these people. Your dedication uh, was striking to me because you dedicate the book to Paul Krasner, Wavy Gravy, and Ram Dass. 
Now, most of our listeners would know who Ram Das is, but many, especially the young ones, would not know Wavy and um, Paul Krasner. Give us a, a thumbnail about who they were and why you chose to dedicate the book to them. Well, if I could reverse the, the, the answer is why I chose to is that there are three people that are now in their 80s who've lived righteous lives. To me, they kind of proved the concept of mm -hmm. this inchoate philosophy that people were banding about at that time. Many people who were part of the counterculture died young, became drug addicts, self-destructed in different ways, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and others didn't. And, and, I, uh, and they were three people that I've gotten to know over the years and who inspire me as having really lit, walked the walk that they talked, or whatever one, one, one would say. Um, uh, Paul Krasner um, is best known for having edited a periodical called The Realist, which was quite a big deal in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It was uh, came out irregularly, kind of every few weeks. You never exactly knew when it was going to come along. And it was probably, over that period of time, the most sophisticated writing uh, about the counterculture. He was very close friends with all of the participants. He was certainly not trying to be objective. He, um, he was very good friends with Lenny Bruce and was the quote-unquote editor of his autobiography. I've, I've suggested, in my opinion, Paul wrote it, but you know, Paul will never say that. He'll always say he edited it. And um, he was also very close with Phil Oaks, with Abby, and he was one of the people who created the Yippies. And, and, and although he's less uh, famous today, than some of the other people that are remembered from the 60s. In that moment, he was really one of the great thought leaders. When I was listening to that all-night show on WBAI and he was a guest, he just had the deepest insights and he had a way of, of bringing sweetness and humor to radicalism. Not, and he was kind of a provocateur as well. He was a provocateur. Mm -hmm. he, had a, he, he published, a, 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 you know, uh, after the Kennedy assassination, yes. he did this parody. He did this parody of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a famous book about Kennedy that, uh, that suggested uh, Linda Johnson did unspeakable deeds to the corpse of, yes. of Kennedy. He, uh, he had a bumper sticker that he sold that said, fuck communism, which, which uh, Kurt Vonnegut you know, later said was like the, the most brilliant summary of what was happening because it was combining the kind of uh, what we today would call the red state antipathy to communism with with the sort of the hip uh, enjoyment of yeah. profanity. Uh, and um, but he was a lot more sophisticated than than those yeah. stories would would tell. And I think one of the great uh, intellects of, of, of the period whose whose um, work holds up quite well. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, maybe um, had, had was a little um, had started as a um, as a stand-up comedian, a protege of Lenny Bruce and Lord Buckley and Woody Allen and others in the village, um, it, he became uh, uh, friends with Ken Kesey, took LSD. Uh, he was tripping one night at the Atlanta Pop Festival in 1969, lying on the stage, um, staring up at the ceiling when B.B. Uh, King had to come on stage, uh, uh, gazed him on the uh, floor and said, wavy gravy. Unknown what B.B. King was exactly thinking when he said that, but from that moment, that was his name. There's a wonderful documentary ah, about. I never knew that. I never. Heard yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It's named by B.B. King, absolutely. Uh, he he was uh, he he. he um, there's a wonderful documentary about Wavy called Saint Misbehaving, 
that's on a lot of the streaming services. Uh, he has gone on to do great humanitarian work. He's quite close to Ramdas. They formed the Seva Foundation together, where where a lot of the money from Be Here, I think most of the money from Be Here now went to, and that's been spent to cure uh, blindness in third world countries. Uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who I'm sure you know, is another. We've had him on the show. Yeah, yeah another member of that board, and is uh, and, and it always refers to Wavy as his best friend, and Wavy runs a. Uh, a summer camp for kids, teaching them to be clowns. He uh, he's a real humanitarian. He brought yeah. a, he he always maintained kind of this cosmic psychedelic humor, but but brought social consciousness to that hippie movement. He he was against the war. He he but he 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 never trafficked in anger. He trafficked mm -hmm. in compassion. And uh, I just think he is a, a borderline saint, and I I believe Ramdas thinks so too. Uh, right. So, uh, but but the reason I dedicated to them is that they survived. They mm. survived the, the 70s. They survived the Reagan period. They survived uh, materialism and cynicism and, and, and have smiles on their faces today that are completely consistent with who they were in the 60s. Right. Uh, Daddy, uh, along those lines, uh, are you disappointed uh, in, in the folks who didn't uh, walk the, the talk, that, that didn't do what those fellows did? and sort of went and became uh, Republicans or became Reagan conservatives <laughs> or whatever. And there was a lot of that. We all saw that. And maybe they, they sort of changed again. But uh, were, were you uh, disillusioned? Did you think there were a lot of people that were disillusioned by uh, what took place in the next uh, couple of decades? Well, I think that what happened very quickly is that the external symbols that meant so much to many of us were drained of, of meaning by overexposure in the media, by being co-opted by corporations and by predators. I mean, long hair at one moment meant, oh, it's a brother. You'd see someone walking right. down the street and you felt this immediate intimacy and trust. A couple of years later, that person might be Charles Manson, a murderer or an FBI agent trying to infiltrate a, a radical group. So so the way somebody looked was drained of meaning. Uh, the language, uh, Phrases like far out and cool and groovy were very quickly co-opted by uh, sitcom producers and ad agencies. Uh, and so, so, so what people had to find was the, the inner meaning uh, behind what the symbolism meant. And I think that the people that were sincere found it in different ways. And it didn't, it didn't matter whether your hair was long or short or uh, whether you said far out or not. Um, mm -hmm. Or, 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 or what color shirt you were, you were wearing. And, and I think that the idea um, then kind of fragmented and informed the lives of a lot of people. I don't think you'd have the environmental movement today without right. the hippie culture. I don't think you'd have uh, yoga in thousands of towns, small and large, without that. I don't think you'd have health food. I mean, my goodness, in those days, the, a vegetarian restaurant was as rare as a hen's tooth. Now. <laughs> You know there are there are there are burger places that have veggie burgers. You know on uh, uh, you know on every highway uh, off of every highway in in, in America. Uh, you know the thing that I miss the most is not that some people were insincere or uh, changed their ideas about politics. Uh, I miss the people who died young. Mm. Uh, you know I just uh, you know I think it probably you know I miss uh, having Jimi Hendrix on the on the planet and. Uh, and Abby Hoffman and, uh, uh, you know, Phil Oaks and, um, uh, you know, a lot of other people who, who, uh, who, who just found uh, life too difficult 
or who weren't meant to live that long for one reason or another. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole pantheon of those. Um, uh, Danny, um, about the, the shift in spirituality that occurred uh, at, in 67 that you document in the book, um, we could talk about sort of landmark moments like the Beatles uh, meeting Maharishi and all that, um, and you do that in the book. What For people who didn't live through that period, and as a matter of history, what were the sort of antecedents? What were the conditions that made us, and I, I say us uh, 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 deliberately, and people like us, so uh, eager to um, embrace an alternative view of, of the universe and everything that the East represented at that time? Well, um you know, one of Tim Leary's sayings was that in order to understand the 60s, you need to understand the 50s. Right. And I right. think that what he meant by that was that the, the mass culture of the 50s was was materialistic and um, uh, had a lot to do with uh, money and status and externality, kind of the kind of characters that the TV show Mad Men portrayed so well. Uh, and that led into the early 60s. Uh, and there, there were there were a number of people uh, who, for one reason or another, were just unsatisfied with that definition of who they were. I mean, uh, obviously, Ramdas is one of the most best articulators of that transition. The way he describes in the book "Be Here Now," uh, mm -hmm. having attained everything that he could in the external world, becoming a Harvard professor, having his own airplane, and the respect that he got from his peers, and pleasing his parents, and yet feeling. Uh, empty inside. Um, I think that um, I think that main mainline religions uh, were meaningful to some people, and and they still are, and they were then. But for millions of people, for one reason or another, whether it was a rabbi or a priest who lacked spirit, or people that were abused, or people that felt it was more of a social tribal thing than a spiritual experience, were not were not being fulfilled. By by their the religious traditions they were born into, and the dominant religion of America then, as I'm afraid I would say now, was materialism. And uh, there had always been um, small groups in neighborhoods like Greenwich Village that were interested in alternative ways of defining the meaning of life. So-called Bohemian culture, the Beats, were the best known in the fifties. But that was a small minority, only found in uh, sort of college towns and a few and a few cities. And 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 the 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 main aspect of the '60s that I think made it something that we talk about today was that it took that Bohemian energy because these ideas were not new: mm -hmm. uh, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, Rosicrucians and Theosophy and uh, other mystical paths had been around for decades or centuries. But they, 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 were, they were, again, limited to small groups. That, 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 that there were a group of factors in, in the media and the demographics of society and the development of certain technologies that took these previously esoteric ideas and placed them on the screen of mass media and mass mm -hmm. consciousness. So you didn't need to be a theology major or born into some mystical cult in order to think about these things. You could be anybody that listened to the Beatles, which is basically mm -hmm. anybody in the Western world. 
at, at, at the same time, there was a great um, suspicion of authority in the United States because of profound questions about the moral and rational basis for the war in Vietnam. And as we're speaking, you know, the Ken Burns PBS yeah. uh, history of the Vietnam War is on. And I think it's pretty good. I think it, it gives short shrift to the anti-war movement. And I, I have some other criticisms of it that I've written about. But in general, I think it's, 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 it's a very valuable document of, of, the, uh, of the emptiness of the leadership of, of the government during, during uh, the, the war in Vietnam. And then the third thing that, that, that developed at the same time was um, the availability of psychedelics. And uh, that is a, not a small part of the story uh, uh, for, for people. Certainly the musicians whose music lives on today, like the Beatles uh, and Dylan and Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead, uh, took psychedelics and informed their art at that period. And, and for a number of people, for at least a brief period of time, and, and Ram Dass certainly, again, being one of the most famous guys that's able to articulate this, it, it gave an experience of defining oneself differently than just materiality. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, he talks today about, uh, you know, we're souls not defined by our roles. And, but that, the, 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 the kind of germ of that, the, the origin of that for a lot of us was, was a psychedelic experience, even if that didn't uh, prove to be a sustainable strategy for, right. for, for getting there. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was going on, you know, again, the secondary things that were going on that, that, that conspired to create kind of this perfect storm that we call the 60s was technology was changing. The first satellite broadcast in history uh, was in 1967, and it broadcast the Beatles singing, All You Need, all you need Is Love. So there was, oh, the ability, wow. there was the ability to connect people all over the world in real, in real time. There was no internet, but, you know, satellite broadcast was a big step forward. The mimeograph machine, uh, which is forgotten, was a big deal because people like Paul Krasner could create their own periodicals without a big right. capital investment, just a few thousand dollars, and you had an underground newspaper. Uh, the FCC changed the um, rules about radio stations so that FM stations were now required to have separate programming from their AM counterparts, and there became another channel for music mm -hmm. other than top 40 and that's mm. what that's what that's what and stereo technology became affordable stereo had come along in the 50s but it was very very expensive when it first came out uh, my parents couldn't afford one when it first came out by the time i was at the end of high school they had these portable klh players you, you, every single college dorm room had had one of them and headphones which used to be only heard in studios by engineers you know were available uh, to, to, to anybody. And finally, the mass media, then as now, was driven by advertising, and advertisers wanted to reach uh, the audience with, with the, the money, that spendable money that, that they wanted. Uh, and and uh, young people are always preferred because that's supposedly when brand preferences take place. But there was this, uh, this so-called baby boom generation. There were more babies born you know, between the 45 and 55 than any previous decade. So advertisers really were obsessed with reaching that generation. And programmers at places like Time Magazine and CBS and NBC and the other major media uh, catered to that. Uh, uh, and so things that 10 years later may have been minor stories, like the Beatniks never were mass media phenomenon, even though they were quite interesting. 
the hippies were a mass media phenomenon. Time magazine had a cover story on the hippies in 1967. Right. Mm -hmm. and, a, and another cover story <laughs> on the Beatles. Mm -hmm. That never would have happened five years earlier. Uh, Danny, uh, thank you so very much for taking the time uh, to come on with us today. And again, the name of the book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea, uh, and a book uh, available now. Uh, and uh, any final words or thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, I just want to say to Phil, I was a great admirer of American Veda. I read it very carefully when I was doing my book. And if there's any, by some chance, anyone listening that hasn't read it, I, I urge them to do so. Great. Oh, I really appreciate that. And uh, I share the compliment uh, for uh, In Search of the Lost Chord. I think they're kind of um, companion books in many ways. Well, that's, uh, that's the highest praise I could hope for. Thanks for including me in your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Danny.